First Peter chapter one verse eight. Brethren, let us hear the word of God. Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, meaning the Lord Jesus, though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Amen. I would focus your words, excuse me, your hearts on two words. If you would look with me in verse 8, excuse me, at verse 9, We'll see in verse 9 the word salvation, and then at the beginning of verse 10. Salvation. Peter tells us that though Christ is invisible to us, we are filled with unspeakable joy and full of glory by faith in Him. We do not see Him physically. We behold Him with the eyes of faith, through the revelation of God, which is the Word of God. It is in the pages of Scripture that we see our Savior. We believe Him and trust Him to be our salvation. The end, Peter tells us, of our faith is the salvation of our souls. That brings us to a question. How are we to understand the word salvation? What does it mean? Now you would think in a church you would never have to define that term. But if I were to call on you and say, Stand up, brother. Give us a definition of the word salvation. What would you say? How would you define that? It's one of those words that we hear in church. It's part of our religious furniture. But very often... It's not a word that we have a clear understanding of. This is the umbrella term, so to speak, for what God does to save His people from their sins. There are many things that constitute the biblical salvation. So when Peter talks about Christ being our salvation, what does he mean? That's what we want to consider tonight. A clear understanding of what salvation actually is helps us to better understand the doctrine of preservation and perseverance. Now, we have seen in previous studies that the doctrine of preservation, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, flows from four things. Number one, the immutability of God's nature, purpose, and promises. God is unchanging in His being. He's unchanging in what He has planned to do. And He is utterly unchanging in His promises. We may believe them today. We may believe them 10,000 years from today. You can believe them 5,000 years ago. If God says it, it's true. If He has promised it, it will come to pass. Now, secondly, we considered that preservation and perseverance flow from the mediation and intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, 
the man Christ Jesus. He is a mediator. He is the go-between. He is our prophet to enlighten us of the truth. He is our priest who offers the sacrifice and intercedes on our behalf. And he is the king who guides us. He meets us completely in our needs. And we persevere because of his mediation. Thirdly, as we saw last week, perseverance and preservation flow from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God's sovereign eternal purpose was to give us His Spirit. And His Spirit dwells within us and guides us to the very end. And that brings us to this evening. The fourth pillar, if you want to say, upon which this glorious doctrine rests, or the fourth fountain from which this wonderful doctrine flows. So, tonight, we want to take up the fourth and final pillar of preservation and perseverance, which is this, the nature of salvation itself. One of the reasons there's a disagreement among those who profess to be Christians about whether people can be saved and lose their salvation and all that type of stuff is because of the way they understand the word salvation. We want to know how the Bible uses it. And we want to know what it means. What does it mean to be saved? Can you be safe and then unsafe? Can you be saved and not saved afterwards? Well, if we properly understand how the Scriptures use the word salvation and what it means, I think we will have to come to the conclusion that once the Lord saves His dear children, they will and forever be saved. The issue is not whether you can lose your salvation. The issue is, do you have it? That's the issue. So, let's begin then defining salvation. Salvation defined. You notice that Peter uses the word very openly. He says, You love the Lord Jesus Christ. Though you have never laid eyes on Him physically, you love Him. Because we've preached the gospel to you. And we've told you that if you put your faith in Him, you will receive salvation. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. The word salvation literally means preservation from destruction. It's not a complicated word. Preservation from destruction. It means rescue from danger or great calamity. In a physical sense, it means deliverance from enemies, plagues, famine, trouble, death. As when Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will show to you today. 
For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. Here stood Moses, before him the Red Sea, on either side a mountain, behind him anywhere between one and a half to three million angry people. And coming up behind them was Pharaoh's entire army. And the Lord said, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The deliverance of the Lord. You will be rescued. He looked as if he were in a completely uh, impossible situation. But with God, all things are possible. And he said, stand still. You will not be able to accomplish this. But watch and you will see God's deliverance. So, in a theological sense, there is salvation, which means the safety of the soul. In a physical sense, we see deliverance from temporal dangers. In a spiritual sense, in a theological sense, there is rescue, deliverance of men's souls. How does God deliver men? Salvation for a believer means deliverance from the power and penalty of sin. The emphasis in the word is deliverance. If you want to remember just one word, remember deliverance. On the part of those who need it, salvation implies weakness, impotence, helplessness, fear, danger, destruction, and even death. The person who needs delivering, obviously, has no power to effect it. That's the whole idea. If you can do it yourself, you don't need deliverance. It's very simple. And on the other hand, for those who bring it, salvation implies strength, power, peace, safety, preservation, life. In other words, the one who delivers has the power to do it. It should be clear. It's very simple. Those who need deliverance cannot do it. Those who can deliver obviously have the strength to get the job done. Deliverance means there's someone without power and someone who, who hasn't. So, taken all together, for those of you who are just joining us tonight for the first time, you're hearing a summary of something that's been going on here for several months. But what we're, what we're saying when we talk about salvation in its full sense, in a full 
spiritual, theological, biblical sense, salvation is the entire outworking of God's gracious, eternal purpose of delivering His people from their sins and preserving them in this world to the world to come. All this is through the merits of the person and work of Jesus Christ applied to them by the Holy Spirit. What they do not have and what they never will have in themselves is the power, the ability to rescue themselves. God delivers. And He delivers through His Holy Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So there are three things we want to remember about this salvation, this great deliverance, this, this incredible rescue. Number one, it's all by God. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9 says, salvation is of the Lord. It doesn't say, salvation is some of you and some of God. That's modern religion. The scriptures tell us that God is mighty to save. And that's what He does. If you have the power to deliver, you don't need a Savior. Does this make sense? Salvation is of the Lord. The second thing to remember is that it's all of grace. It's all by God. It's all of grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them this salvation is a salvation by grace the word grace means unmerited favor unmerited kindness God does not lavish his deliverance upon those who are worthy but upon those who cannot Help themselves. The third thing to remember is that it is all in Christ. All in Christ. All by God. All of grace. All in Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation. Neither is there rescue. Neither is there deliverance. Neither is there preservation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven. None other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. There is salvation no other way than the deliverance that has been purposed and executed by God through His grace in Christ Jesus. 
Biblical deliverance comes this way only. So, if that's the way we define salvation, deliverance, the outworking of God's eternal purpose for the deliverance of His people through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we want to think for a few minutes about salvation purposed. Again, for those of you who have not been able to be with us regularly or those of you that perhaps are with us for the first time, we're summing up... uh, the fifth of five doctrines that we've been looking at. And these doctrines set forth the glorious salvation and God's eternal purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to talk about that purpose for just a few moments, though we spent weeks studying it (coughs) several months ago. The plan of salvation, if you want to use those terms or those words, is generally attributed to the Father. Though we shouldn't understand this, Uh, as if he was the only one that had anything to do with it. Of course, uh, salvation was purposed in the holy councils of the eternal Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They were all in agreement as to what would be done. And this is why it's so vital for us to understand. If God the Father purposes salvation, if Christ the Son accomplishes it, accomplishes it, and if the Holy Spirit applies it, then what end is in view? Delivered people. <clears throat> There's no confusion among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit about what they're going to do. The Father laid it out. The Son accomplished it. It is finished. And the Holy Spirit applies it, infallibly, as we will see. So, uh, the, the planning, the purposing of salvation is normally attributed to the Father, but of course, all of the members of the Godhead <clears throat> uh, have eternally understood and agreed to this glorious purpose. In the Scripture, particularly in the writings of Paul, predestination is usually attributed to the Father. Now, whatever you think about the doctrine of predestination, number one, the Holy Spirit put that word in the Bible. Not a theologian. The Holy Spirit did. Number two, you have to define it and believe it because it's the Word of God. Now, we might not all agree on exactly what it means. I think that we here have uh, a unanimity of understanding But if you don't, you still have to wrestle with the fact that predestination is in the Bible. It's there. And it is attributed to God the Father. Romans chapter 8, passage which we are very familiar with and we've turned to several times in this study. Romans chapter 8 tells us of the glorious purpose, the saving purpose, the delivering purpose purpose of God. Romans 8, verse 28. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God purposed to save his people from their sins. It was not an afterthought. It was not something that God had to come up with. He looked down. He sees Adam sinning. He says, what am I going to do now? He's ruined the whole thing here in the garden. I'll have to come up with something. No, it wasn't that way. All of that taking place there was part of God's eternal purpose. He had purposed it from before the foundation of the world, as we have seen in our studies week after week after week. The Father has purposed. And what is His purpose? How does He purpose to save His people? Well, it's all laid out for us right here. It says, For whom He did foreknow, as we've studied, those that He loved, that He knew, that He had an intimate uh, love relationship with before the foundation of the world, those whom He had set His heart upon before He ever said, Let there be light, for whom He did foreknow, then he also, excuse me, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the goal. Before he ever said, let there be light, his eternal purpose was to save sinners and make them like his Holy Son. This is the plan. It's not a secret. It's here in the pages of Scripture. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. We've looked at the doctrine of calling. And God's wonderful regeneration as he comes and opens the hearts of sinners. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. This is a short summary of the outworking of God's eternal purpose. Salvation is the plan of God. Election is God's choice of people unto salvation. This too is attributed to God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. <clears throat> but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. God has chosen you and He sent His Spirit to do something. That Spirit sets you apart and brings you to belief in the truth. This is what Paul is telling us. So this is salvation plan. The Scriptures plainly tell us that God had a design and uh, predestination and election are part of that. Predestination is the marking out beforehand, determining ahead of time. Election is His choice of those who will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, then we want to see salvation accomplished. We've seen it defined. We've seen that it's purposed. Was this deliverance that God purposed, accomplished? If so, how did he do it? Well, the work of salvation is attributed to the Son, Jesus Christ. As the Father has purposed, 
the Son accomplishes by His life, death on the cross, and resurrection. He accomplished all that is infinitely necessary for the deliverance of His people. Or it isn't salvation. Does everybody understand that? If the Lord Jesus didn't do everything that was necessary to save men, no men will be saved. I mean, this seems fairly basic, fairly obvious. But brethren, if we can lose our salvation, somehow we're not delivered. How is it that we're delivered? Well, number one, we want to look at the word propitiation. Briefly. A propitiation is an appeasement. In other words, it is, a, it is that which turns away wrath. Christ, we are told, was a propitiation for our sins. As the sacrifice upon the cross, He turned away the anger and the fury of God the Father on behalf of His people. The very word propitiation speaks deliverance. Why? Because God is angry with the wicked every day. Because men are sinful and God is holy. Men must be delivered or they will endure forever the wrath of God in hell. They must be delivered from the damnation that they so richly deserve, or they will be lost forever. What can turn away the wrath and the fury of God? Our sins being paid for. All of our sins must be paid for or the wrath of God will still be upon us. If you have one sin left to your account, you will be lost for all eternity. All eternity. And that means it's absolutely vital for us to be delivered that all of our sins must be put away and the fury and the wrath of God turned from us. That's why Christ was a propitiation. That's what 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 means. It says, Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the appeasement, that which turns away His wrath in His precious shed blood and broken body. God the Father poured out all His fury and His wrath and His justice so that all the sins of all of His people might be paid for for all of eternity. That is deliverance. We are delivered from the power of our sin. We're delivered from the penalty of our sin. And in God's mercy, the day will come when we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. That's deliverance. All of our sins must be washed away. If you can lose your salvation, then all your sins have not been washed away. That's right. 
Let's look at it this way. What was man's need? What is man's need? Something to turn away the wrath of God and the righteous indignation of the Almighty Judge of the universe. What can men do to turn that away? According to the Word of God, nothing! But what has God done to deliver men in that condition? He turned away His own anger through the shed blood of His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Look at the word reconciliation. It means bringing two hostile parties into a relationship of friendship and peace. Those who were separated are brought together, reconciled. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How were we reconciled? By the death of His Son. Why were we reconciled? By the death of His Son. As our propitiation, He washed all of our sins away. That which stood between us and God is gone. God is no longer angry with His children. And He can be reconciled and is reconciled in the Lord Jesus Christ to His people. The very idea of the fact that we're reconciled means we've been delivered. We're at harmony with God. We're brought back into union and fellowship with God. If when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, listen to the language, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life we will be preserved because Christ lives his life is eternal he is seated at the right hand of the father and there he intercedes for us we are reconciled to God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ what was man's need he was separated from God by sin God holy Man sinful, separate. What did Jesus do? What did God do for the deliverance of men? He reconciled through the blood of His Holy Son. Look at the word redemption. To set free by payment of a ransom price is what this means. The idea comes from buying slaves. In the, uh, the day that Paul wrote, slave markets were common. You would go into the slave uh, market and at the right price you could purchase a slave and that slave became your own. The price that was paid was a release by payment. We are redeemed. We who are slaves to sin have been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14 says, In whom we have redemption, redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. In Him we are bought back. God has purchased us to Himself. We are delivered. We are redeemed. Now just think of these words. Propitiation, God's wrath turned away. Reconciliation, 
brought back together with God. Redemption brought out of our slavery and the Lord's servants forever. This is deliverance. It is a rescue. It's all of God. It's all of grace. It's all in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? This is salvation. This is to be rescued. Well, let's look at salvation applied for just a moment. <clears throat> Regeneration is a word that we, we use regularly. It means the new birth. It means to be born again. It is the gracious act of God bringing a dead sinner, not dead physically, but dead spiritually, alive through the power of the Holy Ghost. Brethren, the very same awesome power that God used to raise up His Holy Son from the dead is the power He employs in raising our souls from their spiritual death in the new birth. This is God's holy work. It is a gracious work. It is known in the Scripture, regeneration is known in the Scripture as a, a circumcised heart, a heart to know God, a heart of flesh, having a new heart, born of God, begotten of God, born again. It means all those things. Quickened, made alive, a new creature, a new man. Titus chapter 3. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Titus. But according to His mercy, He saved us. In other words, not what you can do, but what He does. Not by works of righteousness. If you need deliverance, it means you do not have the power in yourself to save yourself. God delivers. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. He delivered, rescued, preserves us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. What was man's need? Spiritually dead, cut off from God in trespasses and sins. What did God do? What's God's deliverance? New life through the regenerating power of the Holy Ghost. That's deliverance. He doesn't patch you up. He makes you alive. Look at the word conversion. The root of the word convert means to turn. Conversion is the act of man manifested by faith and repentance. You said, now, wait a minute, I've been listening. You said, God does all the work here. And you just said, the act of man. Yes, that's true. Because the gospel message is to be preached loud and clear. It's to be preached to the ends of the earth, to all nations. We're to tell men to repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true. But those are not meritorious works. And on top of that, Men will not repent and they will not believe until they're alive. Amen. 
As we studied, faith and repentance are gifts of God to His children. Those of you who were not with us, you can get those tapes from Brother Ed. Though faith and repentance are acts of man, they are initiated by the regenerating work of God through the Holy Spirit. When we're alive, we will see ourselves for what we are. When we see ourselves for what we truly are, we will cry out for a Savior. Because we know we can't help ourselves. We know that we cannot change. We know that we cannot make ourselves good enough for God to receive us. And we know that our sins will bury us in hell. Men that are alive see that. And they will turn. They will repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be converted. Acts chapter 3 verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted. It doesn't say and convert yourself. Be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. What was man's need? Well, he needed faith and repentance to turn to the God of mercy for mercy, which he will not do in his depraved state. God's deliverance. What does God do? Granting repentance and faith by the Holy Spirit. He turns men to His Son. Do you believe tonight? It's not because you're smarter than the people next door. Have you fled to the cross of Christ for the cleansing of your sins? It's not because you're so sharp. It's only because you see. The question comes is how do blind men see? It's when God gives them eyes to see. He makes them alive in the Spirit and they will be converted. Well, that brings them then, if they repent and believe, to the word justification. The word justification means to, de- to be declared righteous, to be pronounced just. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. Salvation is all by God. It's all of grace. It's all in Christ. All three of those were right here in that verse. God the Father, in His great mercy, took His Holy Son and had Him nailed to the cross of Calvary. He was tortured and hung upon the cross. Why? Because men are sinful. And except their sins be done away, they will burn in hell. They will suffer the judgment of God. God in His mercy took His Holy Son and made Him the substitute for them. And He poured out all of His wrath upon the propitiation so that those who repent and believe Him alone will have His righteousness put to their account. They are justified. Justification is not something God does in you. Justification is something God says about you. It is the judge declaring you righteous. In other words, it means we're delivered. When a man stands guilty before the judge and jury, he hasn't a hope. 
except somehow the crime be recompensed. And men will either go to hell or they will look to Jesus Christ and see their sins finished in Him. When they look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, God declares them just. The judge says all of your sins were upon Him and all His righteousness is upon you. You are a just man. That's salvation. That's deliverance. Sanctification. Well, let me say one more thing about justification. What was man's need? It's pardon of his sins and the need for a perfect righteousness. God demands a perfect righteousness. We don't have it. But what was God's deliverance? Ah, a perfect satisfaction through the atoning work of His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. And in Christ, all the righteousness of God becomes the possession of every believing sinner. That's deliverance. We don't have the power, but the one who does has delivered us. He's done what was necessary for our rescue. Sanctification. That word means to be set apart. It's the process by which God, through the Holy Spirit, which God, through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, which God, through His Word and through His church, makes people holy. Justification is something that God says about us. Sanctification, being set apart to the things of uh, righteousness and set apart from the things of sin, sanctification is something God does in us. It's His work by the power of the Spirit. It is the process whereby God makes us holy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you. Holy! That's His prayer. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Completely. Holy. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There will never be a blameless man here except you have a spotless record. There's only one place to get a perfect record. And that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, we stand right before God. But God doesn't stop there with simply our title. He doesn't stop there with simply what's in His law books. He goes on to work within us so that we love what is right and what is pure and what is good. And we walk in it. And He works in His people to do that. Or you haven't been delivered. That is why to say you're justified when you're living in abject rebellion against God is hypocrisy. You're fooling yourself. What was man's need? He has no strength or desire to do the things of God. What was God's deliverance? A new heart through regeneration, the power of the Holy Spirit, and working within Him to will and to do of His good pleasure. God's children will obey. Weakly, limited, I understand all that. But they love their God and they will walk with Him. Because God 
works within them. He does. It may be more slowly in some folks, more quickly in some others. But he works within his people to sanctify them. Finally, glorification. This speaks of our being made glorious. Our being made like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the promise. Remember back at the beginning what God's purpose was? To make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 tells us this, brethren. What hope for our souls. Listen to the Word of God. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. This is the promise of God. We will be like Him. He will make us like Him. That's His purpose. This is what before the foundation of the world, God said, I will do. And I will send my Son to accomplish it, and I will send my Spirit to apply it. It's a real deliverance. What was man's need? He was made in the image of his Creator, but by sin. It was stained, polluted, and marred. He needed to be like God, but he can't be anymore. Except in his fractured, sinful state. What did God do? What was God's deliverance? To make them like the Lord Jesus Christ, having purposed it from before the foundation of the world. It begins in this life, and is finally brought to its glorious consummation when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And we will be like Him. We sing in that hymn that we love, I long to be like Jesus. That's not going to be a frustrated prayer for any of God's children. While we struggle in this life, there is frustration But the day will come when we graduate this school and we will be like Jesus. But it begins now. That's what the struggle is all about. That's what everybody's trying to escape. I'm trying to find the easy way. I'm trying to find this doctrine to where I don't have to struggle anymore. It's the struggle that shows that the Spirit is alive within us. That we see what is right and we long to do it. And as we try, we stumble. We find our limitations. We find that the flesh is still with us. But then we cry, I long to be like Jesus. And we continue to pray. And we continue with our God. Why? He's at work. Well, brother, I'm going to run over just a few minutes tonight. But bear with me. We want to sum this up. We've defined salvation. It's deliverance. It can be a temporal deliverance or the spiritual deliverance. Both are found in Scripture. And the one we're concerned about tonight is the spiritual deliverance. Safety for the soul. Rescue from God's judgment. We've seen that God has purposed it. This was His eternal plan. His Son accomplished it. 
And then the Holy Spirit applies it. So I want us to consider these things. I'm just going to say them. Don't try to write them down. If you want them, I'll give you a copy. I just want you to hear them and think about them. We're going to drink from the fire hydrant for just a few minutes. Okay? But just listen. To say that a child of God can be finally lost is to say that God's purpose to give each of His people in Christ everything necessary to save and keep them was either faulty or overturned by the will of man. To say that a child of God can be finally lost is to say that though God chooses a man into salvation, there's no guarantee that He can actually keep him. It means that God has chosen a specific individual to grant him all things that pertain to life and godliness, only to fail, either because all things aren't enough, or because God's purpose can be overturned by the will of man. To say that a child of God can be finally lost is to say that even though Christ turned away the wrath of God for His people, that somehow God's wrath can be kindled again. This means that the work of Christ was faulty and unsuccessful. Or that the will of man can somehow overturn the propitiating work of Jesus Christ. To say that a child of God can be finally lost is to say that though the propitiating work of Christ has satisfied God the Father and reconciled sinners to Himself, that man is still capable of becoming the enemy of God again with no sin to his charge. Or even if all the sinner's sins are done away in Christ, somehow his will can overturn his being made the friend of God. To say that a child of God can be finally lost is to say that though a sinner has had his entire debt of sin paid by the blood of Christ, he can still offend God once again, become a slave to sin once again, and become Satan's property once again. Either Christ did not really pay for the sinner's debt, or the sinner's will can undo and finally overturn the will of and work of Christ. To say that a child of God can be finally lost is to say that even though the Holy Spirit has given the new has given the believer new life so that he understands the word of God, repents and believes, he can still overturn the work of the Holy Spirit and die in spite of being alive. In other words, the work of the Holy Spirit is either faulty or weak or the sinner can overturn and undo the regenerating power of the Holy Ghost which is described as the same power which raised Jesus from the dead. 
To say that a child of God can be finally lost is to say that though the Holy Spirit has granted a sinner faith to believe Christ and His promises, repentance to turn away from his sins, and is converted to live a new life in Christ, he can still unconvert himself and go to hell. In other words, God requires faith and repentance unto everlasting life and to perfect righteousness which He has in Christ. He gives it to them because they believe His Son. But those same sinners can overturn the fulfilled requirements of God. Even the repentance and faith granted the believer by the Holy Spirit was faulty or though God requires these for salvation, and when manifested by the sinner, he still rejects them. Or the will of the sinner can overturn the converting grace of the Holy Spirit as a new man. To say that a child of God can be finally lost is to say that even though God declares, accepts, and treats a sinner as righteous as Christ, that sinner can somehow can become unjustified and guilty once again. Which, of course, I guess you understand means that somehow he can sin again. Which means that if he can sin in such a way as that God will damn him, then his sin was not paid for by Christ. Which means that Christ did not pay for all the sins of that man. To say that a child of God can finally be lost, is to say that even though Christ said that no one can take these sheep out of the Father's hand, and though Paul said nothing could separate them from the love of Christ, this is untrue. The sinner's will can take him out of the Father's hand and separate him from Christ. To say that a child of God can be finally lost is to say that Christ's perfecting all his children by his own sacrifice is a lie or unsuccessful. And that Paul's prayer that God's children be sanctified holy goes unanswered. To say that a child of God can be finally lost is to say that even though God already sees all His elect as glorified, that somehow some of them will fail of this. Which means that God's eternal purpose is frustrated and that what God sees is actually faulty, unsuccessful fiction. which he himself believes and can be overturned by the will of man. What am I saying by these ten things? If we can lose our salvation, man is God. He is greater, stronger, wiser, and more powerful than God. 
and the lie of the serpent is true. Ye shall be as gods. Or, the word of God is true, and God delivers men. He doesn't partially save them, because that's not deliverance. He doesn't save them so they can be lost again. They're not delivered if that's the case. The very nature of salvation is the perfect accomplishment of God's holy purpose, which He planned, undertook in His Son, accomplished in His Son, and applies by the Holy Spirit. I will preach, and I will believe that good news because that is good news you may have the salvation that you can lose because in fact it is a lie it is no deliverance it is no rescue God's children are preserved by his grace and they persevere until heaven let's pray Oh, Father in heaven, you save sinners and we praise your holy name. And Father, your children here tonight have hope. Their question doesn't need to be, can I lose this glorious work of Christ? They only need to be sure that they believe the Savior and that they believe the Gospel which alone is the power of God unto salvation. Save your dear people, O Lord, and keep them in thy glorious power that they may be trophies to thy grace forevermore. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.